All right, let me read for us now from Psalm chapter 61. This is the word of the Lord. Would you take heed how you listen? To the choir master with stringed instruments of David. Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. Selah. For you, O God, have heard my vows. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. Prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. May he be enthroned forever before God. Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. So will I ever sing praises to your name as I perform my vows day after day. Well, friends, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Now, as we walk through Psalm 61 this morning, I want to walk through it using four headings to guide our time. So first, we'll look at the rock that is higher than the God who protects the king who reigns forever, and the believer's vow of praise. So first, the the rock that is higher. You know, whenever we read Psalms, it's often helpful to try to figure out what's happening in the life of whoever wrote this particular psalm. In the case of Psalm 61, we, we don't know exactly what's happening in David's life, but we're offered a few hints throughout the chapter. For instance, we see that his prayer in verses 6 and 7 is for the years of his reign as king to increase, which tells us that this this psalm is written once David had already become the king of Israel. But then we see in verse 2 that he's crying out to God from the end of the earth, which likely means that David's writing this psalm from somewhere outside of Jerusalem, where his, you know, where his... um, his castle was, so to speak, where he lived, where his home and shelter was. He's, for some reason, removed far from his home. And so, most likely, this psalm was written by David in the time when his son Absalom was rebelling against him and leading this rebellion of men to try to take over the throne. And so David flees away from Jerusalem. He's hiding out in the wilderness amongst the the, the rocks and the caves surrounding Jerusalem. And he's fleeing from his own son. And so it's from, likely from one of these caves that David writes what it says in verse 1. Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. Now, we need to realize something incredible about a prayer like that in verse 1. It's that a prayer like that is always answered. Anytime we pray and ask God to hear us, he does. Our Lord is is always faithful to hear your cries. He's always faithful to listen to your prayers. God is never annoyed with you for praying to him. He's never, oh, here comes that guy again. He would never say that. He's always faithful to, to listen and hear our prayers. In fact, the New Testament reminds us that at this very moment, Jesus Christ is praying for you. Hebrews chapter 7 tells us that that he always lives to make intercession for his children. That Jesus right now is interceding for you. He's praying for you. What a sweet reminder that is. 
He's always listening to your prayers, and he's always praying for you. And so David's prayer in verse 1 is answered, okay, yes, David, I hear you. I hear your cries. I'm listening to your prayer. Now, his prayer continues in verse 2. He says, from the end of the earth, I call to you when my heart is faint. So in this moment, he's isolated. David is lonely. He feels close to death. Yet look at where David puts his focus at the end of verse 2. He says, Lord, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. David fixes his eyes on the Lord and calls God his rock. Now, of course, around the city of Jerusalem, there's lots of large rocks and caves, and David knew every nook and cranny of those hiding places. A few times throughout his life, he had to flee there as a younger boy being chased by Saul and then now probably by Absalom. And so he's, he's looking at these rocks where he's hiding and finding his refuge, and he says, Lord, you are my rock. As we read in, in the, earlier in the call to worship this morning, David does this frequently throughout the Psalms, where he calls God my rock. But uniquely here in Psalm 61, he, he modifies that phrase, God, you're my rock. He modifies it in two key ways. First, he identifies the rock as higher than he, meaning that God's ways and God's knowledge are infinitely greater than anything David could ever hope to attain. So with this phrase, David is confessing that his own perspective in life, his own knowledge is incomplete, that he desperately needs the Lord's help and the Lord's wisdom, and the Lord's guidance for his survival. You could think here of what David's son Solomon, not Absalom, but Solomon, who wrote the book of Proverbs, Solomon wrote this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In a sense, that's what David is praying here. Lord, you're the rock that is higher than me. He's reminding himself, okay, I need to trust in God's wisdom, in God's understanding of the world, for God is higher than me. When you think about this, it, it really speaks directly against kind of the self-sufficient nature that, that's so prevalent in our culture. It seems like everywhere you look, the, the independent person is the most praised. We're trained to think that, you know, the moment you ask for help is the moment that you failed. But David's showing us here the exact opposite. He is completely confessing his weakness to the Lord, his total reliance on God, on the rock who is higher than him. So I want you to think for a moment, is that, is that the posture of your heart? Are you the kind of person who, who tends to think, I've just got to solve all my own problems and then maybe I'll go to God if things get really bad? Or is the posture of your heart one of confessing to the Lord your weakness, your utter dependence on him? So I mentioned that David modifies this, this rock description of God in two ways. First, that God is higher. The second is that is the manner by which he approaches the rock. Look in the middle of verse 2 again. He prays, Lord, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. So he's again confessing his weakness, that by his own strength he cannot come to the rock. 
Rather, it's the Lord who needs to lead him or carry him to the rock. I think this fits well with the idea that we see frequently throughout Scripture that Jesus Christ himself is called the rock. And we need to be led to him by the Holy Spirit. You can think of the next psalm, Psalm 62, which we already read this morning. He alone is my rock and my salvation, referring to Christ. Or in John chapter 7, Jesus is said to be the rock from whom salvation flows. And so by praying for the Lord to lead me to the rock, David is is helping us to see a key aspect of how salvation in Christ actually works that it's the Holy Spirit who leads us to the rock of salvation. It's the Holy Spirit who who draws us, who gives us faith, who enables us to trust in Christ. It's not this idea where you have to clean yourself up and, and prepare yourself and then maybe God will accept you. Rather, it's that the Holy Spirit draws poor, dead, in our sin sinners to him. We need to remember that any faith that we have in Christ, even faith as small as a mustard seed, is a gift from God. Apart from the Holy Spirit's work in your heart, we would have no faith in him. And apart from the saving work of Christ, the reality is that we are dead at the bottom of an ocean of sin. We simply don't have the power and the strength in ourselves to cling to the rock. We need the Lord's help. We don't simply need you know, a lifesaver tossed out that we can grab onto. We need to be drug up from the bottom of the ocean and have new life breathed into us for us to ever cling to Christ by faith. There's the same idea that the Apostle Paul puts forth in Ephesians chapter 2. He writes in verse 1 of that chapter, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Meaning that without Christ, without the Holy Spirit giving us this faith, we are simply dead in our trespasses and sins. Then he says this in verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, Even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. We're reminded that it's only by the saving grace of Christ that we're lifted up from spiritual death into life, and it's because of the Holy Spirit's work in our hearts that we're able to cling to Christ as the rock of our salvation. And so as David is praying in Psalm 61, lead me to the rock, he's really asking to be led to Christ for salvation. Now this is a key truth here for those who are not yet in Christ. For those who have not yet confessed with their mouths and believed in their hearts that Jesus Christ is Lord and that God raised him from the dead. If you're here this morning and that's you, you're not yet in Christ, Let me urge you to turn to Christ today. Pray the same way that David prays in Psalm 61. Lord, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Ask for the Holy Spirit to awaken your cold and dead heart and to make you alive together with Christ. Cry out to the Lord and and, and beg for him to lead you to the rock of your salvation. I pray that you'll do that today.
you'll cling to him by faith. And so after crying out for the Lord to be his rock, David then reminds himself of, of once he's in Christ, once he's in presence of the Lord, he reminds himself of the protection and safekeeping that God offers for all of his children. So this is our second heading, the God who protects. When you look at verses 3 and 4 of our passage, you see four different images that describe how it is that God provides protection for his people. We see that God is our refuge, that he's our strong tower, that he's our protecting tent, and that he provides shelter like a mother bird does for, our, for her young. So you have these four images. The first is in verse 3, he says that you have been my refuge. And so again, David is calling to mind the, these times where he's found refuge under some rocks and caves outside of Jerusalem. And he's remembering, you know, even back to his childhood, running away from Saul, he's remembering, Lord, you were faithful to me then. You were my refuge then. I trust that you are my refuge even now. I mentioned this last week a little bit, but this is a theme that recurs in the Psalms of, of really reminding ourselves of the Lord's past faithfulness in our life. When you're in a moment of crisis, to, to look back and remember, okay, the Lord was faithful then, he's still faithful now. So something we need to, in a sense, preach to ourselves over and over again is to look back and see just how faithful the Lord has been and let that give you strength in the moment. So the second picture we get is that God is David's strong tower against the enemy. So in this word picture, David's not you know, outside the city hiding in a cave. Rather, he's inside the city taking protection in a strong tower of defense. You know, the, the caves outside the city are a place to hide. A tower in the city was a place from which to fight. So David is confessing here that his God will fight for him. That God is his strong tower and his defender against the attacks of the enemy in whatever form they may come. The Lord is David's refuge, his strong tower. And then the third image we get is that God is his tent. In verse 4, let me dwell in your tent forever. Now notice that this is moving in relationship from protection to relationship. He's desiring to be even closer to God. The Hebrew word that we, that's translated here as tent is the same word that's often translated as tabernacle, referring to that, that kind of focal point of worship in the Old Testament for the Israelites. This is the place where God's presence was said to dwell most fully amongst his people. And so David knows that there's no safer place for him to be than in the presence of God. So he's longing to get back to the temple. But he's longing for something more than just physically being in the Jerusalem temple. Look again at the end of verse 4. Let me dwell in your tent forever. He says he wants to be there forever. So this is not just a longing to be back in the Jerusalem temple. David is longing for heaven. He's longing for eternity. He's longing to be in the full presence of God forever. So I ask the question, is that your heart's longing as well? Does your heart long to be with your Savior in heaven 
forever. Now up to this point, each of these images has grown increasingly close, increasingly intimate. You know, it starts out in the caves, then it moves to the strong tower, and then the tent. But now at the end of verse 4, we come to the most intimate image of God's salvation and security for the believer. He writes, let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. You can picture here a, a mother bird with her outstretched wings and then kind of covering her young. This is what the Lord does for all of his children. That when we turn to the Lord in prayer, he provides refuge and protection and abiding comfort. To put it another way, the Lord alone is where we find our true and resting peace. Not just a, a brief break from life's problems, but actual lasting peace. It's only found in the Lord. It's only found in Him. Let me remind you what the Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians 4. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, which is exactly what David has done in Psalm 61, in everything, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Will guard you. This peace of God will guard you like a mother bird guarding her young. Friends, that that. That peace, that peace that we long for, that comfort that we desire is only available in the Lord. He alone provides it. And one of the means through which he does that is in our prayers. When you pray, are you asking God for that kind of protection? Are you asking him for that kind of closeness of relationship? Let's move on to our third heading, the king who reigns forever. So David prays this in verse 5, which I should mention, you see the Selah in the text at the end of verse 4. I said last week, I think that means drum solo, uh, but that's just my own, you know, I, I like to play drums. It could be guitar solo, it could be a harp solo or a piano, so whatever it is, it's a break, and then we get a change in verse 5 where David writes, For you, O God, have heard my vows. You've given me the refuge of those who fear your name. So he, he refers to some vows or some promises that he made to God in the past and that the Lord has been faithful to hear those promises and those prayers that he's prayed before. But once again, this application point of looking back on God's previous faithfulness is, is a great comfort to us now. But then he says, you've given me the heritage of those who fear your name. And so in a sense, David is identifying himself with God's people in the generations that have gone before him. You can think of him, him saying, like, God, you've been faithful to protect Noah from the flood. So I know you can protect me now. Or just as you were faithful to, to, to Abraham to make from him a mighty nation, God, I know that you'll be faithful to me now. Or Lord, just as you were faithful to, to speak the words of the law to Moses, I trust that your spirit will help me to obey that law now. He, he's identifying himself with just the generations of God's people who've come before him. 
But I want you to remember the, the context in which David is writing this psalm. Right? He, he, he knows he's a part of this mighty nation of Israel. He's the king of it. And yet he's in a moment of crisis. He's in a moment of great distress where it seems like his life is in danger. And so that's what leads him to pray in verse 6, prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. Now at first glance, this seems like kind of a selfish prayer for David to pray, doesn't it? How, how could David expect for his own reign as the king to endure for multiple generations? After all, he's just a man. And death was certain for him. So there, there is a sense in which David's asking for God to prolong the years of his reign. But I want you to notice the, the, the subtle shift in grammar in verse 5 and 6. In, in the first five verses, as well as in verse 8, David is speaking in the first person about himself. But here, rather, in verses 6 and 7, it changes to the third person. David starts speaking of his and he, right? May his years endure forever. May he be enthroned forever. Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. And so David, in these verses, is not merely asking for his own life to last longer. Instead, he's asking God to fulfill specific promises that God had made earlier in his life. There's a story in 2 Samuel chapter 7 where God himself makes specific promises to David. Where God himself makes a, a covenant with David. I want to read just a few sections from 2 Samuel chapter 7 to hear what God said to David. God says, when your days, speaking to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, meaning when you pass away, I will raise up from your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house in my name. And so, so this part of the covenant is fulfilled in David's son, Solomon. Right After David died, Solomon takes over as king and Solomon is the one who would go on to build the permanent temple in Jerusalem. But then God, God says this to David in verse 13. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But with steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul. And he says this in, in 2 Samuel 7, verse 16. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So this is God's promise to David, that your throne shall be established forever. And there, there is a sense in which th this promise is fulfilled in the kings who come after David and after Solomon. That David's kingdom in, in Jerusalem does last for several generations. And we see that those kings are sinners just like David and Solomon were, but they committed iniquity. They sinned against God. And when they committed those sins, God disciplined them. God allowed other you know, kingdoms to come and attack Israel. Just as he said here, you know, when, when they commit iniquity, I will discipline them with the rod of men. But still God's faithfulness to those kings didn't fail. 
So there's a sense, yes, it's fulfilled in the kings who come after David, but there's a much bigger picture that we need to see of these promises to David. That these earthly kings in the line of David were, were ultimately pointing forward to the one true king, Jesus Christ himself. All of these promises, all of these covenant promises in 2 Samuel 7 are ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. He's the one whose throne is established forever. He's the one who is currently, right now, reigning over his people. He's ruling and defending and reigning at the right hand of God. Okay, so what are we to make of this promise from God in 2 Samuel 7 about the iniquity of the offspring? Because we know that Jesus Christ himself, in the totality of his life, he never once sinned. And so what are we to make of this, this comment that he'll be disciplined with the rods of men? Well, although Jesus Christ never sinned, he still died a sinner's death. He still died under the rod of men. As Isaiah 53 puts it, he, Christ, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. So yes, the, the, the kings who came after David were sinners. Yes, you and I are sinners. We're the ones who, who deserve the discipline and wrath of God because of our sin. But Christ Jesus stood in our place. He was pierced on your behalf. He was crushed for your iniquities. And it's by his wounds that you are healed. This forever king is the one who would die in the place of his people on Calvary's cross. So once again, in, in verse 15 of 2 Samuel 7, we see that God's promises and his steadfast love to that king would never depart. That his kingdom will reign forever. And so that's what David is praying for in Psalm 61. He's praying for Christ Jesus to come. Look again at the prayer he prays in verse six, verses 6 and 7. Prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. May he be enthroned forever before God. Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. That prayer has been answered in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's his reign that endures for all generations. It's he alone who is at this moment reigning and ruling and governing all his creatures and all their actions. What a great comfort that is. To trust that that prayer has been answered. That Jesus Christ right now is protecting and defending his people. Right now he's doing that for us. So with all this in mind, David concludes his psalm with a brief prayer, a brief vow to praise God for the rest of his days, however long they might be. This is our final heading, the believer's vow of praise. 
So David writes this in verse 8. So will I ever sing praises to your name as I perform my vows day after day. So David's kind of making a commitment to God with two promises. First, he's saying, God, I will ever sing your praises. And second, he's saying, I'll perform my vows day after day. To put it another way, David desires to, to glorify God through all of his life and to be obedient to do whatever God calls him to do. So really, I think when you look at verse 8, this is a great summary of the Christian life. This is a great summary of what it looks like to be in Christ, to know that you've been rescued and redeemed by a Savior and given new life in the Spirit, then this needs to be our prayer, to sing the praises of God day after day and to be obedient to whatever the Lord has called us to do. Now, my wife Nicole and I have our three young boys. One's in childcare across the hallway, but two of them are here. And we've been working with them over the last couple of years to, to memorize parts of what's called the Children's Catechism. If you're not familiar with the Children's Catechism, it's a list of questions and answers about the Bible and what the Bible teaches. And we found, at least for our kids, it's, it's helping to kind of build a framework for their faith as, as they learn to grow and trust in Jesus. But question four of that catechism asks the question, how can you glorify God? And I'm curious if my boys are going to say it with me. Levi and Simon, how can you glorify God? By loving him and doing what he commands. Hey, you actually said it. Right? I can glorify God by loving him and doing what he commands. So as Christians, our life lived to the glory of God. This is what we are to aim to do to love Christ and to do what he commands. We are to love him and worship him with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we are to aim, to, 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 to hope for, to long for, by his strength, to be obedient to whatever he commands. This is the goal of the Christian life. Now as we conclude, I, I want you to look at the structure of the psalm again. I mentioned at the beginning that, that I want us to think about how this psalm could encourage and affect our own prayer life. So look at the beginning. David starts out by crying to God, feeling as though his heart is faint and that he's at the end of the earth. And, and oftentimes when we're in that similar situation, our inclination might be to turn to God at, as David did. But then, at, at least for me, maybe you found this to be true for yourself, your prayer tends to focus inward. That you, you dwell on, on how you're feeling in that moment and, and you're complaining to God just you know, about all of the things that you're going through. But that's not what David does in Psalm 61. Instead, he, he turns his attention upward to God. He focuses on the rock who is higher than he is. And then he spends much of the prayer reflecting on God's attributes, on God's character, and God's promises. This ought, to be, this ought to be the same for our prayers as well. You know, David recalls God's previous faithfulness. He recalls how God has been his refuge and strong tower against the enemy. And then he, he recalls how God has been his refuge. And then he remembers specific promises that God has made. 
he remembers this specific promise about the, the Messiah King who one day would come, who would rule on the throne of heaven forever. And if you sense the tone of this psalm, by the end of it, David's confidence is renewed. You know, his, his problem isn't solved. He's still out in the caves outside of Jerusalem. But his resolve is strengthened to continue praising God and serving him for the rest of his life. I think this ought to be our model for prayer as well. Even when we don't feel like praying, even when we feel like we're at the end of our rope and just totally lonely and isolated, that our heart is fainting, even still we can follow the pattern of prayer in Psalm 61. To turn to the Lord, to turn to the rock who is higher than I, and praise him for the salvation that's been given to you by grace. Praise him for the, for the refuge that he's offered for you. Praise him for his lordship and kingship over your life. Friends, I, I hope you've experienced this in the past. I know I have recently in my own life that when you pray like this, when you run to the rock who is higher than you, you'll find that your strength is renewed. That God will use those prayers that you're crying out to him to strengthen your heart. To remind you again to trust in the Lord. To trust in this rock that is higher who will carry you through. I hope and pray that all of us can, can learn to pray more like this. Learn to cling more to the rock that is higher.